You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. You know what I can always tell when I get a book and I plan to read it and I kind of put it in my reading list and then my wife gets a hold of it first and reads it before me. Any of you guys in the room have this problem? You like buy a book, you're like, I want to learn that stuff myself first and do that. Well, I can always tell when that happens, not because like the book is bent or anything. I can always tell because when my wife reads, she has to read with a pen. And when she has a pen, she underlines things. She puts flowers and smiley faces and little frowny faces and hearts and notes in the margin. Uh, You don't believe me? Let me just show you a little quick picture from her Bible, okay? So this is what my book will look like if she got a hold of it first. And my joke with her is that it's probably impossible for her to read without a pen. And typically it's a Sun Grove pen. So if you wonder where all the Sun Grove pens went, Heather has them. But listen, not only is Heather a great wife and a great mom, but she is actually one of the most intelligent people that I know. And I think to some degree, it's how she assimilates the information that she's reading. There's something about the way she interacts with the written word that makes it just take root in her heart. And what I want you to do today is take out your outline. Your outline in your program is actually on the back of this little flyer sheet. So I want you to take that out and grab a pen out of the seat back in front of you. And we're gonna look at that a little bit here together today. Here's something I want to share with you that I read this week. I thought it was interesting. It said at the most basic level, everything that we learn is encoded in chemical and electrical connections between the neurons in our brain. Cognitive scientists observed that the physical act of actually reading a book with its pages and the fact that it's kind of bound together helps strengthen the learning of the concepts within. That's interesting, right? Like we're such a digital age that we don't know that there might be some connection there with an actual physical book. He said this as well. Likewise, physically taking notes by hand on paper, the act of physically forming the letters with its twists and the turns of the pen and the resulting uh, fatigue in your hand and the rest that you need actually turns out to aid memorization and learning even if you never go back and review those notes again. Isn't that interesting? Barna Group did a study on that just this last week and I was reading about it and I just thought that's so interesting because when we think of getting on board the ship of discipleship, most people think it's getting more information and being a better disciple. Like if I just get more information, then I'm going to somehow be a better disciple. What, what most people think is that being a disciple means I get more information and that's just going to help me know the answer. So if somebody asked me a question I didn't previously know the answer to, I know more of the answers. I know more about the Bible. I know more But that's not how transformation in your life happens. That's not actually even the way necessarily of discipleship. Do we learn and grow more? We absolutely do. But transformation in your life only happens when you take information and then you apply it. So information plus application equals transformation. More information alone just simply makes people educated beyond their obedience. Right? We have a wealth of information in our world. We know so many things we ought to do. But unless we apply what we know we ought to do, there's no transformation. There's no transformation in your physical workout. There's no transformation in your life. There's no transformation in your time management unless you take information and apply it to equal transformation. 
And the way of discipleship is a little bit different. It's a little bit different than that. And we want to talk about how to get people on the ship of discipleship. As we've been in this series, we've talked about the different vessels that you and I need to board to get us to the growth that we actually want in our lives. We want that transformation. So how do you get on board the ship of discipleship? How do you and I invite others on board the ship of discipleship? But in order to do that, we've got to understand what is discipleship? Because if I asked 10 of you in this room, what's discipleship? You probably would come up with 10 different answers, right? You'd have, well, I think it's this. And then you'd like to add more to it. Oh, I missed something. I'm going to add something else to it. You want to keep adding what discipleship is, but we want to work it down to the very root and the core. And if you're taking notes today, physically, with your hand and its fatigue on your outline, you know, number one, a Christian disciple is a person who accepts and assists in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. It's twofold. See, a disciple is not a person who simply says, well, I accept it. I accept the good news of Jesus, that my sins are forgiven, and I'm going to receive that. That's not a disciple. That's half of a disciple. A disciple is someone who not only receives and accepts it, but they assist in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want for ourselves to be able to do, that, that we want God. I want to receive the gift that you've offered to me, but I want to assist. And that means God's going to help you assist with your temperament, with your personality, in the influence that he gives you. That we're not to compare ourselves to everybody else, but to say, God, how do you want me to come along and assist in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ? It's not a guilt trip. It's actually a high calling. And God has you in mind with that. In fact, here at Sun Grove Church, when we look for ministries that we come alongside with, we always want the offense and the defense together. You say, what do you mean, Dave, the offense and the defense? Well, if you've been watching any college football, you know that both sides of the game are important. And so what we do is we say, there's got to be the defense of whatever need or cause or social work is at hand. That's defensive. Because no matter how much work you do in that, that need might always exist, right? If you're going to try to solve world hunger, you're going to keep working your whole life and there'll still be some hungry people. That's defensive. But the offense is we bring the good news of Jesus Christ, which outlasts the lifespan of the hungry person. That leads them into the kingdom, that we want the offense and the defense. If you've been watching the news this week, you've been absolutely, like me, mesmerized with the stories of people just trying to survive the amount of rain that happened through Hurricane Harvey in Houston and other areas. And it's just amazing. We thought we got a lot of rain here last year in California. We have no idea, right? You have no idea that just what's going on there. And maybe you've been watching saying, how do I respond as a disciple of God? How do I respond to a need that's out of my state, a need that's in another place? How are we going to do that? How do we respond as a church? I think the Bible says something about Churches helping brothers and sisters in other parts with the needs that they have. I think the Bible speaks to that quite a lot in the New Testament. And what I want you to know is that actually in our missions budget here, whenever you give to Sun Grove Church, 10% of what you give instantly goes to money we give away. It's our tithe, if you will, as a church. That we're going to honor God with the first that has nothing to do with us in the same way that we ask that, you know, we would be obedient as an individual to honor God by giving the tithe at the church. And so as a church, we tithe. And so part of that missions budget is what's called the discretionary missions. You say, well, why is it discretionary? Well, it's discretionary because we don't know what disasters will happen in a given year. But we don't want to simply go, oh my gosh, a disaster happened, but we, got no, we have no resources. 
We want to always have money set aside that when something goes down that God responds in our heart to respond to, that we respond with the offense and the defense of the good news of Jesus Christ with the very real physical needs of our world. And so this week, we took some discretionary money and we were able to help out the Houston Pregnancy Help Center. And here's what I love about a place like that because we kind of vet who we give money to. We look and say, are they a part of the evangelical uh, Christian Financial Association. They have the highest standards for how they handle money. So we know that when you give toward that, it's going to be handled with the highest standards of integrity. And most of what you give goes directly to those in need. And so when we looked at this organization, we found out some things that they do. And I loved it because they have the offense and the defense of the gospel. My father-in-law is a guy who sits on the board of a pregnancy resource center in Southern California. And so I've watched firsthand how a Christian pregnancy resource center offers free and available help to pregnant moms and husbands or boyfriends who are involved in that. How they not only help with, we'll help out with ultrasound and we'll help out with your physical needs and the things that you need and we're going to do it, but we're also going to share the message of Christ with you. And we're going to try to talk you out of terminating that baby. We want you to keep that, that children are a gift of the Lord. And so they do this work. And one of the neat things just in 2017 the Houston Pregnancy Help Center, which has three locations. Their fifth ward location is underwater. They've got five staff people living in a shelter right now. They said this year alone, they have saved 993 babies. Will you give it up for that? Right? That's awesome. They're already in this year. That's what they've done. Now, they've serviced about 4,200 clients, whether it's the mom or the boyfriend or you know, the couple there that they've done that. And then they've done the defensive work. Let's save the baby. Let's do the defensive work. But what I love even better is that they've been able to share the gospel with 1,754 presentations to people who are considering should they keep their kid. Pregnancy is what brought them there. But in the context of that defense, they brought the offense of the good news of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our church sent a check for $3,000 to them this week. And that came out of your generosity, out of your giving. Will you give it up for that? Now, some of you, you may want to be like, you know what? I'm going to give above and beyond that. And we say, great. If you want to do that, then text HPHC, Houston Pregnancy Help Center, to 77977. So just text that and the amount you want, and you'll get the instructions from there. If you want to give above and beyond that, again, if you already give to Sun Grove Church, you've given. You were able to help a very real need for people who are doing the offense and defenses work uh, in Houston at this time. Pregnancy is one of the mediums by which those people are able to catch people and put out the net, not only to help them with their pregnancy, but put out the net to help them hear the hope that is in the good news of Jesus Christ. That may be the only thing. They may never walk into a church. They may never have had a religious background in their lifetime, but they come in because of their needs of pregnancy and that free help is available through Christian organization and churches who fund that center. And it's like that's the net that's thrown out. But because they hear the good news of Jesus, they can be brought on board the ship of discipleship. Now, you and I, you think to yourself, well, how do I do that? How do I catch people? How do I get people to be on board with Jesus Christ? How do I, how do I catch them? And you're like, I don't really know how to catch people. And I would disagree because I think you catch people all the time. I think some of you, you catch people all the time. You catch people and you go wine tasting. You catch people and you play fantasy football. 
You catch people and you go to a painting class or you go watch a football game or you work out. You exercise with people that you catch. You catch people to go on a road trip. I think you and I know how to catch people. I think we do it all the time. I think we recruit people and we catch them all the time in our lives. And, and what I want to remind you of is, is just simple, a simple truth that sometimes we get off mission. We get around to start catching things instead of people. Or we start catching and collecting things, experiences and memories and, and stuff. And we wonder why our lives are a little bit empty is because God's designed you and I to catch people. But number two on your outline, God knows who and what you've been catching. God knows what you're used to catching. God knows what you catch all the time. God knows how you interact with people. God knows your personality. He knows your temperament. He knows that you're not like everybody else, but he wants to uniquely use you. If you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Jesus is now at a point where he's beginning to choose some disciples. And so it says this, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, by the way, that's just the Sea of Galilee. At this point, you're 600 feet below sea level if you go visit Israel. You're on the shore of the lake. You're actually 600 feet below sea level. You're not the lowest point of the earth. That's the Dead Sea, which is 1,400 feet below sea level. But you're at 600 feet below sea level. You're by a beautiful lake. Jesus is out there, and he's beginning to teach people. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, and the one belonging to Simon— And he asked him to put out a little bit from shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now pause with me for a minute. Here's Peter. He's feeling flattered that this teacher is using his boat and he's coming on board, but this guy who apprenticed as a carpenter, Jesus, is now telling the fishermen how to fish. Put yourself in that superman. I'm a professional fisherman. I may not be educated like you, Jesus, but I'm a professional fisherman. And Jesus is like, I'm an apprentice carpenter. But he starts telling them how to fish. And he's like, listen, we know how to fish. We've been doing it all night. But now, okay, I'm going to try it, right? So it goes on, it says this. Verse 6, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, and they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and followed him. Again, picture this moment. Jesus is teaching the people. He's giving them information. But Jesus wants to take information, bring some application, and cause transformation. And so what he does, he tells them to go out again, The carpenter is telling the fishermen how to fish. They go out. They catch this miraculous catch of fish. They're blown away. And they come back. And Jesus says, from now on, you're going to fish for people. I know you're good at catching fish. I know you caught fish. By the way, it's so interesting. He told them to go out into the deep water. 
Because even today, to this day, when you go to the Sea of Galilee, they fish for fish in shallow water, not the deep water. The tilapia, which are in that place, they like the shallow water. They don't like the deep water. Nobody fishes the deep water. Jesus says, go out to the deep water. They're like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And they catch this miraculous catch of fish. Proves to them his authority as God. And they're afraid. And he says, first thing he says is, don't be afraid. See, sometimes you're like, we get caught up in that. Hey, you're going to now catch people. You were catching fish, but now you're going to catch people. But the first thing Jesus says to them is, don't be afraid. What's our natural compulsion if God were to call you and I? We might experience some fear. We might experience some insecurity. We might experience some shame. And the first thing God says to them is, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And you got to realize that God knows what you've been catching. He knows how you gather with people. He knows how you're wired. And yet, as a citizen of heaven, God has changed your license. Could you imagine if he were part of fishing game and he showed up, hey, uh, Simon, Peter, let me see your license. Oh, you're a fisherman. All right, well, I'm now going to put another stamp on that. I'm going to change your license. You're now a fisher of people. And that's pretty much what happened. They were professional fishermen. They were good at it. It's what they normally caught. Well, God knows what you and I normally catch. But God comes along at times as a citizen of heaven. He is going to come along and call you and I and change our license. He said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. We say, well, that was to Simon Peter, but what about me? Well, Jesus, after he had been buried, dead, raised to new life, he's about to ascend to heaven. He gives the church, he gives us the great commission. It's not a, uh, an option. It's what he gives us as a commandment. And he says this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, here's the command, catch it. It's to you and to me, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus Christ comes along and he says, listen, I have called you, I've caught you, I've drawn you to myself, but I've given you now this commission to go and catch people. And some of us, if you've grown up in the church, uh, maybe for a while you think, well, how do I do it? Like, uh, do I feel ashamed if I haven't like led somebody to the Lord? And the truth is a disciple accepts the good news of Jesus and assists. Well, God's going to call you to assist how he's wired you to assist. Some people are going to preach and be very dramatic about it. Other people are going to share just through their influence. Other people are going to, they're going to serve in the church. Other people are going to serve in the mission field in the world. And God's calling you to use your temperament, your style, to be a disciple-making disciple. I want you to understand, that's what you are. You and I, we are disciple-making disciples. On your outline, right? Number four, I am a disciple-making disciple. There is no such thing as a disciple who doesn't make disciples. You say, wait a minute, I thought that if I just accepted God, then that was good. No, a disciple doesn't just accept God. A disciple sometimes will leave what they've been catching and they will follow the new mission. They have received the grace of God, but now they say, God, as you've caught me, now you've given me the commission to go and fish for people. So I accept the message of the good news of God, but I assist in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. As God chose and invited me, so I 
choose and invite others. We're to share our faith with non-believers. Tell them about the wonderful changes God has made in your life. You say, well, I don't know how to do it. Listen, simply just tell them what God's done for you. You don't have to convince them and surprise them with every apologetic in the world. You don't have to overwhelm them with some sensational story. Just tell them what God has done for you. What was your life like before? And what is your life like now? Not that your life is like the change all of it, but saying, here's what God did for me. I was lost, but now I'm found. And this is how I walk in relationship with Jesus Christ now. Tell them. See, no matter what our maturity level is in the Christian life, we have something to offer. And all too often we believe the life from Satan that says, you know what? You don't know enough. You don't know enough. You got to get more knowledge. We believe the lie that you don't know all the Bible verses. We believe the lie that you're not good. In fact, in fact, because of your sin, you ought to just zip your mouth. You don't have the right to say anything to anybody. I got to tell you something. Some of the best people who share the good news of Jesus with others are brand new believers because they have just interacted with them to receive the amazing love of God and they don't care. They don't know all the Christianese. They don't know a bunch of Bible verses. All they know is, I didn't know God, and now I know him. I've interacted with his amazing love, and I just want you to know about it. I don't know all the answers, but you got to know what I know now. And I think sometimes as you go along in the Christian life, you begin to listen to the evil one, and he begins to say, no, you need to be quiet. No, you need to catch other things. Let me distract you over here. Let me distract you over there. And what I want to do is really distract you into insignificance, thinking that a disciple is one who just accepts but doesn't assist. I'm a disciple-making disciple. I have a question on your outline number five. Do you have what it takes to invite people into community? Do you have what it takes to invite people into community? Now, I gotta let you know something. Typically, a man, the question he's asking in his job, in his workplace, is in, that, is in his identity is, do I have what it takes? And typically, we're looking for a dad to answer that for us if we're a man. Dad, do I have what it takes? And sometimes our dads, they, they ignore us. Sometimes our dads, uh, they either you know, think that we're gonna be insignificant, we're incompetent, or that we'll just amount to nothing. We're unimportant. And so sometimes we catch the message that I don't have what it takes. And our culture certainly promotes that message right now for men. Man, you don't have what it takes to be a dad. You don't have what it takes to think wisely. You don't have, if we're going to need a rescue here, it's got to come from somebody other than a guy. And the truth is we're asking this question based on what God says about us instead of what a culture says about us. And this question is this, do I have what it takes to invite people into community? Women in the room, you're, you're saying, am I accepted? Am I beautiful? Am I lovely? Am, am I, do I have what it takes in terms of like being beautiful in those ways? Our culture asks, but oftentimes you're going to ask that, ladies, from a dad. Dad, tell me I'm beautiful. And in our culture, with the breakdown of the family, sometimes you ladies are growing up and you're still asking that same question. And you're playing the competition game and it's getting you off mission. And, and the reality is, do you have what it takes? Well, let's see what God says to you and to me about if we have what it takes to invite people into community. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, to have authority to drive out demons. And these are the 12 that he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, right? The fisherman. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boandrius, which means the sons of thunder. 
I think I've given that nickname to guys who like refried beans, right? Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, we don't know much about Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Jesus goes up on this mountain. He's seeking the Father, and he prays for those that he would call to be his disciples. And you've got to realize these are not educated men. These are not the men who have a big platform. These are not the men who have celebrity status. These are the people that he calls. He goes, God, who, who should I bring? And who are you putting across my plate? And it's a very small community in that region around the Sea of Galilee. And he calls these 12. And they come to him. And they're with him. And I got to tell you something. Sometimes when you invite people or when we're invited, we have the same reaction as Peter. Sometimes people have a hard time when they're invited into community. When Simon Peter saw the great catch of fish, right? He fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Isn't that our reaction sometimes? Well, God, you, you would choose me? No, 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 you don't understand. You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I'm all about. And sometimes when you invite friends or others and you invite them into a circle or you invite them to church, their reaction is going to say, I'm not religious. But on the inside, they're freaking out. They're like, get away from me. I'm a sinful person. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. And the first thing that Jesus said to Simon Peter was, do not be afraid. My question is, do you have what it takes to invite people into community. Just remember, when you got invited into community, you had to get over your fear. In the same way, sometimes the people that you invite into community, they have to get over their fear. Just come. Don't be afraid. Come on. Come and be a part of this circle. Come and be a part of coming to church in some ways where you could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. See, God has already appointed you to catch people. He's already chosen you. You can't talk him out of it. It's a done deal. You can't be like, God, well, that's for other people. No, no, God's like, no, no, I chose you. And I'm choosing you to do that with people that you know. The people, in fact, I'm putting across your plate. I chose you. You can't talk me out of it. And God's almost, I think sometimes the principle in Scripture is this. God's like, listen, you catch them, I'll clean them. Right? You catch them, I'll clean them up. Your job is to go out there and let me bring the people that I'm already drawing to myself across your path. You catch them. I'll clean them up. They don't have to be clean before they come. They're going to come. We are all messy when we come. We're all saying, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man or a sinful woman. You don't have to know it all. It's okay to say, I don't know. Let's discover it together. How non-threatening is that, right? That's what the early church did. Jesus gave the Great Commission. He ascended up into heaven. And now people are going out to preach. And so you begin to see that they research the scriptures. They prove that Jesus was the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures to convince Jewish, staunchly Jewish people that Jesus, in fact, is the Jewish Messiah. See, Paul, he used to catch people that disagreed with him. He's like, who out there disagrees with Judaism? I'm going to go after them. I'm going to catch them. I'm going to put them in prison. I'm going to kill some of them. And he was good at it. And isn't that what our culture does right now? Who disagrees with us? 
and we can't handle it if you disagree with us. So we got to go out and we got to attack or we got to go out and we got to protest. And, we gotta, and, and we're so easily offended. We don't know what to do if people disagree with us. And Paul was that way. His name was Saul early on and it was changed to Paul. But what happened is he begins to go out and attack these people. But then on the road to Damascus, so he's headed from Jerusalem to Syria and he's on his way up there and a bright light hits him and Jesus is in that light. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, who are you, Lord? I don't know, he just sees a bright light. He's blinded by it. He hears a voice. He said, it is Jesus whom you are persecuting. In that moment, God caught someone who was directly opposed to him. God caught someone who was absolutely against him. God caught him and changed his catching license. You're no longer to go out and catch the people who are believing and throw them in prison. In fact, you're to go catch the lost and have them believe in me, Jesus. So he does that. And in Acts 9, verse 20, it says this. At once, this is talking about Saul, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem and among those who call on his name, the name of Jesus, right? And hasn't he come here to take us as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. What do they do? So let's search the scriptures together and found out that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. God is still in the business of catching people who disagree with them. You think, really? Yes. In fact, there's a former Muslim assassin. His name was Alim, and he worked for Saddam Hussein. He was staunchly against Christianity. He was an assassin for Saddam Hussein, but when Saddam Hussein was killed in 2006, Alim had to change careers, so he started building cell phone towers. And while he was building a cell phone tower, terrorists came, and they kidnapped him, but his company refused to pay the ransom. They're like, we don't care. We're just going to wash our hands of you. So here he is, he's stuck, he's with the terrorists, he's stuck there now, he has no hope, he's separated from his family. And Mission Network News tells his story and they said this, Aleem saw Jesus in a vision, he states, Aleem, you belong to me, I will deliver you, the Lord told him. And true to Jesus' words, Aleem's captors got into an argument the very next day and Jesus appeared to him and said, you need to leave right now while they're in this argument, and he did. When he arrived home, he found out that Jesus had also appeared to his wife. She said, Jesus appeared to me. He said, you belong to him and that he was bringing you home. But I expected you a lot sooner. <laughs> it was at that time that he and his family accepted Jesus Christ. See, God's still in the business today of catching people of bringing people who are directly opposed to him, the most unlikely people, and bringing them to himself. The fishermen were uneducated people. They were not the ones that you would see as being future religious leaders of Israel. And God made them world changers. The question is, are you allowing God to make you a world changer? Don't you realize that he's called you with your temperament, your personality, with your intellect, to catch people in the way that you naturally catch people? It's a beautiful thing that God would call you. I mean, God does still call celebrities. He caught Alice Cooper. He's a professing Christian. He caught Chris Tucker, the comedian, who now doesn't even use profanity in his comedy acts. 
He caught Brian Welch, lead guitarist of Corn. He caught, of all people, I mean, think about the hardest person in the world to catch, Chuck Norris. He caught him. And let me show you a picture here just for the men, just want to remind you guys, real men do live for Christ. Chuck Norris. We got a men's retreat coming up. Don't share that. It's probably the cheesiest thing I ever saw. <laughs> Funny thing about Chuck Norris is we used to lead a college and young adults ministry in Southern California. That's what Heather and I did before we came up here. And there'd be hundreds of college students and young adults near Cal State Northridge on a Sunday night church thing that we would be running. And in the back would walk Chuck Norris and his daughter because his daughter was a college student, young adult. I'm telling you, nobody messed with his daughter. You'd be sitting there and it'd be all dark in the room and we're all worshiping and stuff and she's in there with everybody but Chuck's in the back and he's watching. Yeah, you don't mess. Chuck Norris, but he's a believer. And you say, well, Dave, you know, Aleem is an extreme case and Chuck Norris is a celebrity, but, but what about me? And what I want you to catch today is that I think the biggest miracle is that God would use other people to accept him and now assist him in bringing the good news of the gospel to you. That God use other people to bring the good news of Jesus to you. You, who had a very small platform. Do you know if you want to write a book these days, they ask you, well, how big is your online presence? Do you have a million followers? Do you have this? If you just want to write a book, they're like, we don't want to produce books for people who are, you know, have a very small following. And you and I would look at each other and go, we don't got a big following. We're just, we're just us, right? But God wanted you. Without your big platform, you who at times would rather hide and accept Christ and keep faith a secret, but God cared about catching you. And that's the miracle. Some of you, you were swimming directly away as fast as you could in the opposite direction of God, and he still cares about catching you and bringing you into his amazing love and relationship with him. Listen, some of you, when we talk about like sharing your faith, you instantly think the workplace. Well, I can't share the faith in the workplace because I could get fired. I could lose my job. I mean, our, our world is more and more antagonistic about sharing your faith in the workplace. And I'm like, you be the light. When you go to work, if you have Jesus Christ, God's Holy Spirit in you, you make that place a better place because you carried the Holy Spirit in there with you. So you work with integrity, you work hard, you take the high road in the workplace and the light of Christ will shine through you. But here's the good news. If you can't share in the workplace, that's fine because your employer can't tell you what's okay to do after hours in your home or in your dorm room or in your apartment. And you can create a place where you invite people to come to know Jesus, come to relationship. They can't tell you what you're going to do in your home. They have no say in the night that you're not working, what you could do, or in the early morning before you get to work. They have no say in that. And the best way for you and I to catch people is to have a place where we let down the nets. We've got to let down the nets somewhere. Some of us are going through life and we're like, I'd love to catch people, but you haven't put the nets out. There's nothing in your life that's a net to catch people. You just think they're just kind of going to come to you. And the reality is God's saying, let down the nets, and some of you are like, God, I tried. I tried that before. I did that, and, and nothing happened. Well, sometimes you and I got to say, because I say so, because you say so, Lord, I'll let down the nets. And let me tell you, 
The best way is to create a place in your life and in your routine to invite and catch people God is bringing across your path. Whom has God been putting in your life? And what if you invited them to a circle group that you just said, I don't have it all together, I don't know it all, but I will host that group. See, some of you are like, I ought to sign up for a circle group. And I'm like, uh-uh, you ought to host one. You know why? Because if you host one, we'll give you the curriculum that you can use. It's on video. You can lead a discussion. That's great. You could have somebody else who's more extroverted lead a discussion. But we'll provide the curriculum. But what you got to do is have a medium, a place in your life where you let down the net. So that as God brings people across your life, you're able to invite them to the ship of discipleship. You got to provide the ramp you got to throw down your net and let them climb on board. It's that, it's that picture of a, a larger ship that pulls up next to a smaller ship in distress and they throw over the net so that the, the people who are in despair can climb up the nets and get on board the ship of discipleship. What are you doing? You're simply just saying, God, I accept you and I'm going to assist in spreading the good news of the kingdom of God because I'm a disciple. It's what disciples do. So last on your list, number six, hosting a circle group invites people into the ship of discipleship. Luke 5, verse 5 says, But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Let me ask you this. They put down the nets. Was the catch more than they anticipated? They anticipated, I'm going to let down the nets and it's going to be zero. They put down the nets, and it was larger than they anticipated. I think sometimes our faith is so small, and God's saying, put down the nets. Create something in your life and routine like a circle group that you can invite them to. Listen, if you invite a friend to a circle group, it is a more natural boarding onto discipleship than coming to church. It's more natural to invite to your house. And there are so many of you who are so good about inviting people to church. And it's awesome because God lets us here catch people and get them on board the discipleship. In fact, many of you in this room are here because you accepted Christ in this room, at this church. And it's beautiful. Verse 7 said, So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. What I want to do is encourage you to apply to be a circle host today. We just want you to fill the little application, apply to do that. Uh, what I want you to do is flip over your sermon notes and on the other side tells you about a meeting that I want you to attend. It's called a fall host meeting for our next series. We want for the next like nine weeks that start in, in just a few weeks, for a nine week season, we want you to come on board and host a circle. And we've got a meeting that lets our existing host leaders encourage you, but also it's a time for you to ask questions, find out information, figure it out. You apply, you come to that meeting. If you haven't been to the Discover class, we'd love you to come to the Discover class. It's the same night. We'll just have you do Discover class. And so you just figure out how to go from guest to being part of the family uh, here at Sun Grove. But we've got this meeting. We would love for you to apply to be a host and just to find out more information about that. You can sign up in the lobby for that. You can sign up online. But here's what I want you to do to consider that. Let me give you a map of Elk Grove. I want you to look at this right now. This is a map of our current circle groups, okay? Within these circles, there may be a couple different groups. But these are reflecting the areas in which we have them. And let me tell you something, like this is great and all, but, but I wanna zoom out a little bit. Can we zoom out? There needs to be a circle on your college campus. There needs to be a, 
the nets need to be let down in the pocket area and down at Walnut Grove and out in Wilton and, and in our region that, that your apartment complex, your neighborhood needs a circle group, a place where we invite people into community of discipleship, a place where they have the chance to at least hear the good news of Jesus Christ and choose to accept him and assist in spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. So you can do that today, but it all starts with us accepting Christ, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. This is just for a moment. If you are a disciple making disciple, this is a moment for you to say, God, what have I gotten distracted by? What I've been catching other things. I've been caught up catching things that don't really matter. I've been catching people for things that don't last into eternity. And maybe right now, God is just gonna put on your heart that you should lead a circle. You should host it. But for others of you in this room, you're realizing I've never heard the good news of Jesus. I've never accepted it. I've never come to respond to the love of God that he would draw me into relationship with him. He would forgive my sin. He would wash me as white as snow and he would make me a citizen of heaven. If that's you today, then you pray a prayer to him like this, just right where you're seated. You just pray this after me. Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and that you were buried that you rose to new life because you're God. And I ask you right now, God, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you wash me as white as snow? Because today, God, I put my faith in you and I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.